This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Critics at Large, a new podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Vincent Cunningham. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nomi Fry. Each week, the three of us come together to make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. So today we're going to discuss a new biography of Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson. It's an interesting read because it comes at a time where Musk is like everywhere. His cars are on our roads. His satellites are in our skies. Deciding war (laughs) outcomes, by the way. Um, His tweets are on our phones. But it also struck me as I read this book that it doubles as a study of the myth of the tech founder that's so much with us these days. Could, Could we play a quick game? Um, please. please. So, <laughs> <laughs> Games, please. Well, you're welcome. Um, I'll, I'll start first, too. What is one word that comes to your mind when you think of, like, the tech genius? Just a word. I'll start. Turtleneck. Oh, my God. That was my word. Go, well, get another one. Quick. Uh, uh, um, arrogance. That's boring. Turtleneck was my word. Damn. Psychopath. Mm. Um, uh, um, <laughs> Too much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no Too true. far? Um like fake hippie. Dr. Strangelove. Uh, awkward. These are all valid, and <laughs> and maybe they'll come up later. There are no <laughs> wrong answers in this game. There's no wrong answers. Today we're going to look at Musk for as long as we can stand to, but then we'll go beyond him to think about this archetype, the lone founder somewhere near Silicon Valley who, against all odds, changes our lives and the history of our culture. Um, Musk typifies this, but... How much of that is just myth-making? Why do so many of us cling to this idea? Um, so maybe let's, let's just start with the book. Let's start with Isaacson's biography, which, by the way, I – just to tell a quick story, it caused a lot of trouble for me um, this, this week. I first – I accidentally, while moving my daughter into her dorm room, brought it into her dorm room, and it caused a big problem. Um, what was the problem? The problem was – I hadn't taken off the dust jacket yet. The cover of this book is Musk with, like, his hands in, like, prayer hands looking out at you. uh, Very, like, fake Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. looking sort of, like, trying to reach some sort of profundity. Um, And my daughter was like, is this for me? And I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) She's like, because she's like a computer science person. Because you don't think I like him, do you? I was like, no, no, I'm sorry. And then when I got on the plane where I read the bulk of this book, I, I took off the dust jacket. It was a s- weird source of shame for me. It did See, it did not occur to me until I came into this recording room and saw your naked book that I could have done this because, <laughs> interesting, I too have had a great amount of shame merely walking around in public trying to find places to read it. I mean, yesterday as I was finishing, I, I was camping next to a bush at a local coffee shop and I was just felt very shaded by the presence of this bush from anyone who might be walking by. <laughs> You know, 
Why? It's Why like reading. You... It's like reading porn in public or something. Yeah, I just want people. <laughs> it felt well because I, I think it's for me reading is this, porn. <laughs> I mean, way, Vincent, like for you, I guess your daughter was was just you know not wanting to be associated with Elon Musk at the beginning of her. She didn't want to be like career. the Musk and, girl. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, the, the Musk girl. Famously right. loves Elon. Right, senior year, everyone's like, remember when your dad brought that biography? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. that's interesting though because I think also I mean it's so context-based, right? So in in these spaces where you guys, you know, uh, uh, Vincent in this dorm room and Alex, you in, you know, Brooklyn, uh, we're feeling also a little bit bashful about this. But of course, we should remember that this biography is flying off the shelves yes. yeah. and bought not as a hate read of a person who it's embarrassing to be, you know, pursuing his life path, but as an ideal, a model yeah. by so many people. And and hence, here lies one of the tensions, right? Yeah. That this is a person who is extremely divisive. And where does this biography stand yeah. in relation to this divisiveness? How, yeah. how close is Isaacson to Musk and how far is he from Musk, you yeah. know, um, so let's, in let's telling start his with, life story. Yeah. yeah. Let's start with the text then. Let's just like go straight into the book. Yeah. yeah. So what did you think of, what were your initial impressions of the book? Well, okay. First of all, I just want to briefly not start with the text. I'm going to go back to the text, but I just think people who have not seen this book should know that the cover is exactly as Vincent described with this kind of cult-like portrait of Elon Musk um, with his hands in prayer position. But the back is to me, um, you know, a, a, a vulgar image. The back, the back <laughs> is a picture of a rocket. It's just, I mean, I'm sorry. Well, Gary Steingart called it a penis in, it, in his you. Guardian so review, I don't need right? To, yeah. yeah, it's just like basically, <laughs> so I mean, it's the expectations set up by the cover of this book are of a hagiography. That's what we're getting. Um, this approach to biography to me is like riding a mechanical bull. Um, you can feel Walter Isaacson just trying to hang on to the details of the life. Uh, there are a lot of details. Elon Musk has done a lot of things. He's founded a lot of companies. He's launched a lot of rockets. He's created a lot of products. He's caused a lot of turmoil. Um, and the approach is very straightforwardly chronological. We're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to advance bit by bit up through every year. We're going to detail the relationships, the divorces. We're going to go to Tesla, to Starlink, to Twitter, now called X, whatever. Um, <laughs> and I felt at a certain point that the real thread and the plot was getting lost. Um, I, I felt that this was almost like notes for a biography in a weird way. Mm -hmm. um, there's no perspective here. Yeah, the perspective, I think, I agree with you, Alex. The As I was reading, I felt the perspective was getting lost as well. And uh, um, there's no real questioning, again, not even in a negative way, but there's no questioning if the axioms that um, Musk is presenting and, and Isaacson is ventriloquizing in this book and their validity. So, for instance, just, just one example, there's a constant return to Musk's uh, devotion to the idea of interplanetary expansion, right? We have to do this because we have to uh, save the human race. And it's just presented as fact, right? I mean, it's presented— We have presented, to be a multiplanetary species. We have to yes. be a multiplanetary species. And I'll do—and this is worth everything else. Like, it's I'll do anything in order for us to, to get there. And it's just kind of um, accepted as gospel— I'm like, wait, is it? Is it? I, I get that Musk is saying it, but the book is just presenting it as truth, 
essentially, you know? Um, I I felt quite impressed, and certainly it's not something I would ever be able to do uh, in the kind of, like, reporting and information and gathering and organizing of this book. I think think you'd be able to do it. Well, thank (laughs) you, I'm sorry to say. No no shade to Walter Isaacson. I think you could do it. No, no, thank you. But but it's just, it's, it's, it's a large project that is executed. I just I just want to give props. You it's know a large what I mean? project that is executed. <laughs> that sounds really bad. If my editor but... wrote that to me, I would crawl into a hole and die. It is it is large. No, but you but, have executed guys, it. but you know what I mean. Well this is what I mean about the mechanical bull a bit. I yeah. felt like there were moments when I did not and <laughs> it's I really a large don't... project that is well, executed. Sorry. I, it, no you're right. Yeah. And I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um it's it's there's a ton of information to try to metabolize. Yes, um, exactly. However I felt frequently uh, and I really don't mean this as shade to Isaacson. Actually, I kind of do. Um, I just didn't feel he'd metabolized it. I wasn't sure yeah. if he knew what a bee nut was when he said that the bee nut might no. be to blame no, for the failure just... of the of the second launch, yeah. you know, um, off the Marshall Island atoll. Like, I, I don't know if he knows yeah. what that is. A lot of it felt to me you could hear Elon in the room quickly explaining what this or that thing was. Um, you know, and the sources, the main sources of the book are – brother, you know, his brother. Friends. Kimball. Kimball. Friends, I wouldn't say Kendall because succession is, <laughs> succession I mean, is ever really, close to a story so like this. ever close, yeah. The, the, yeah, there are a lot of facts. A lot yes. of things that happen, but there are but, yeah, <laughs> so many facts, but they're all unsynthesized. Like for one, for just one thing that like you can notice through this is like the total acceptance as like, sure, that makes sense, of like giving over things that used to be public to the private sector. Right. Like, yeah, it's like, OK, we, we do these things faster than Boeing and we do this, these, these things faster than these other aerospace companies sucking on the teat of government, I think yeah. Elon says at one point. And SpaceX can do this better. And that is a something that you notice throughout the book, but it's never tied together by Isaacson. It's something that is a, a, a theme of Elon's. But Isaacson never intervenes as a, to your point, Alex, critical presence to say to show us like there is politics around this. The other thing that he never really shows us is. Okay, your grandfather decided to move to apartheid South Africa and you grew up in that milieu. What does that mean about how you think about other people? Like we don't see him as a product of history. We only see him as like a, a maker of things, but we never see what currents he's oh, subject so, to. I so would, totally yeah, true. I yeah. Mean, I would argue not only does he not notice this or acknowledge it, I think Isaacson is actively um, obfuscating the history. I mean, I know Jill Lepore made this point in her review for The New Yorker uh, that she wrote of the book. But, you know, to to pick up on that detail that you're mentioning, Vincent, about the history and the context for um, for Elon's family, yeah, his maternal grandparents moved to South Africa in 1950. And Isaacson says, and I noticed this the second I read it, you know, Isaacson says um, apartheid was still the, the law of the land. No, no, no. Apartheid had just been instituted as yeah. the law of the land two yeah. years before. We're not talking about moving to South Africa in 1989. Yeah. Um, and Jill Lepore has also published a really fascinating piece on on the website about the deep anti-Semitism yeah. uh, and fascistic yeah, beliefs of, of, the, of the grandfather. Which Isaacson calls quirky. Quirky, quirky political quirky. beliefs, yeah. He likes to fly planes. So we have a problem. We have a problem. Big problem. Uh, this, this issue of Isaacson and his framing maybe helps us move to what is this archetype that we're dealing with? What kind of person is... Musk supposed to be in his own eyes and in ours. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, what do Musk and Batman have in common? (laughs) 
You're only going to find out here. (laughs) Stick around. (laughs) It strikes me that, like, this, you know, visionary tech founder is something that we've all, you know, especially in our lifetimes, have really grown up with. Um, Mm -hmm. Over and over, Isaacson, in a sort of intratextual move, because he, of course, has also written a a biography of Steve Jobs, he's always like, you know, he did this thing that Steve Jobs used to do. He's always bring Isaacson, the only interventions that Isaacson really makes are when he's like, that's a lot like Steve Jobs. And when when Musk chooses a designer for his cars, it's like, just like Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive, like, as, as if they're like the Beatles, as if he's saying, like, just like, Paul and George. It's like, wait, what is this thing that you're referencing? You know? mm-hmm. What do we think about this, like, myth-making? And what do we think – how did you see it at work in this book? Yeah, well, you're asking this question about what kind of character we get and what is the character portrait we get of this latest and biggest tech founder. I mean, Elon Musk is the richest person in the world, and he has a lot of power over our lives. I feel that this is – bears endless <laughs> repeating. Um yeah, um, we have um, on the one hand the jobsing archetype of the jerk who shouts and yells and gets results and pushes people to do things that they didn't think they could do and doesn't care about alienating people because the ones who stick around are the ones who accomplish his vision. Um, there is one literary or pseudo-literary archetype, archetype I have in mind, and I, I mean this as a neutral statement. I don't mean this as a flattering statement. Um, I'm not really a comics person, mm-hmm. but I think continuously of Batman because the thing uh-huh. that I never quite understood, not being a comics person about Batman, I was like, he's so Batman is just really rich. Like his superpower is being really rich. <laughs> and so he can have all the technology. He right. can like have the Batmobile. He can, I guess he he um, comes by some sort of pair of bat wings. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seen him swooping around. <laughs> so like Batman, money, and I mean, yeah, yes. just look, I'm, I'm doing the best I can to, yeah. to understand what's going on there. But like <laughs> he can buy his way into fighting crime and um, becoming a superhero. Mm. Elon Musk, to me, that is the mentality. To, to, to talk about this Batman thing, like there's a part in this book where um, Robert Downey Jr. goes to meet Elon Musk. He makes him part of the the sort of mood board for how he portrays Iron Man, who's another one of these Superman uh, heroes who are just like uh, regular people. You know what I mean? Like he's like just a rich guy who has a bunch of money and he puts on a suit and stuff. You know? <laughs> is that who Iron Man is? That's what Iron Man is. Um, I'm learning right here in real time who Iron Man is. <laughs> his guy's a billionaire <laughs> Tony, named Tony Stark. Tony Stark. Um, and yeah. he, and, okay. and, and at the beginning. Bring me in a little. You know, I'm be- living on my no, own. I'm, just no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm bad with that. I, I'm not. I'm not. Vincent, you I don't know them to, very well either, but I do know that more. the beginning, I was just watching this with uh, my brother-in-law actually. Um, the beginning of every Iron Man movie is... Tony Stark, like, in his, like, billionaire cave somewhere, um, attended to by his various whatever servants slash collaborators. And he's, like, it's partly plot device, like, showing you his new gadgets. And he's the one that's tinkering with them. So he is, like, this billionaire vigilante, but but also tinkerer inventor. And we got this with Steve Jobs, too, this archetype. Like, part of this mythology is, like, a visionary artist. So it's like mm-hmm. Tony Stark is in there. It's like, I think the laser should come out like this. And at first it's not working. And by the end, he's like mastered it because he's like not only the rich guy who can buy the thing or whatever, mm-hmm. but he's also the visionary who can who can make it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I wonder um, what other kinds of uh, archetypes are is either Isaacson or 
Elon Musk himself drawing on or, or sort of depending on to build this persona? And how far can we trace those? Well, one thing that I found really um, actually spot on in a in a in an eerie way in the book was Musk's second wife, um, whom he married and divorced and married again and divorced again. Um, Tallulah, Tallulah Riley. Tallulah Riley. Tallulah Riley. And a, a young, a very young actress um, who they, they married when she was 22 and I believe he was 37. They met when she was 22 and they married a couple of years later. OK, was, so yeah. so there you have it. Um, she says in the book, you know, Elon, you're like my Mr. Rochester, the, the, um, the character in Jane Eyre. I'll always come back to you. You know, Mr. Rochester famously keeps his first – wife, his mad wife, locked in the attic, uh, falls in love with Jane Eyre, the governess of his ward, and is just all around a really stormy, mercurial, um, I mean, sexy, yes. I'm not in any <laughs> yeah. way saying that part extends, but clearly to to Lula Riley it did. Um, yeah, Inexplicably. Like, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, actually a terrifying example of male power and mm-hmm. certainly male dominance uh, over women and what goes on in Jane Eyre, a subject for another time, is really complicated to think about uh, how poor Jane fall, falls under his spell um, yeah. and so does the reader. I thought that was a fascinating comparison that she made. You know, she sees the, the – the point I think for all of us is that she sees a certain romanticism in this figure and the storminess and the unpredictability, you know, which I find – at a certain level, rather dull because it just it just is what it is. It, it's you know this guy's a jerk. He yells. He achieves something. He yells. You know, on a character level, it's not that interesting. But she, because of her love for him, yeah. um, seen through this lens, you know, ennobles right. it. Right, and arguably also she sees you know Rochester, especially towards the end when he is blinded to Lula O'Reilly, seemingly sees a kind of uh, weakness maybe in this bluster, right? She sees uh, the hurt little boy yeah, yeah. inside the the blustery man. Um, you know, another archetype is, of course, the late 19th century, early 20th century robber barons, right, who built, you know, the railways or built great things, amassed enormous fortunes, and to hell with the, the human cost, yeah. right? Now, when I go to the Morgan or something and I look at the library of J.P. Morgan, um, you know, we're removed from the misdeeds of these people, right, by history. We're like, oh, how great, you know, this gift to culture. But we can only say that because we're removed and with Musk, we're living in Musk's world. <laughs> and I think the book tries to treat him as if he's already J.P. Morgan, you know what I mean, uh, rather than right. someone who has a living who right now has a living engagement with so many people and his effect on so many people is still extant, you know? Yeah, I mean, where in our sort of the media that we've gotten over maybe even like the past 20 years, I think one of them, Alex, did you tell me that you had recently rewatched The Social Network? Sure did. Like, this is one of them, right? Take us back. The the, the media that we've taken in that... Let me tell you something. (laughs) In 120... Cool minutes. <laughs> that film accomplishes a great deal. That's a movie. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Aaron Sorkin. That's a movie. I mean, two, two, two that hours cold. That is a big cold. project executed. Get, that's a big project executed. <laughs> that is a big, that is a movie. Right. That movie was a good time. The Social Network came out in 2010. Yeah. 
written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher. And the last time I'd seen it, yeah, when we were, because we were reading the Musk book, I wanted to, you know, we were all talking about going back and looking at this, you know, the archetype of the tech founder and how they're portrayed in culture. And so I remember watching The Social Network in movie theaters when it first came out. Um, and I rewatched it again in the comfort of my own home the other night. It's such a great movie. It is so funny. It's um, It bends the history to its own purposes in such an artful way. You know, all the exaggerations and all the rubbing of facts, totally justified in my opinion, <laughs> mm-hmm. to create a portrait of someone who um, flirts with sociopathy in mm-hmm. creating a, a social network, um, the most antisocial person you can think of. And similarly, Musk the is— The Facebook. Yeah, the Facebook, as it was originally called. Musk is portrayed this way in the Isaacson book, someone mm-hmm. who really cannot um, often get along with people and cannot, uh, you know, w- wants to plow through their opinions and their feelings um, as a way to get his own way. Mark Zuckerberg is portrayed much like that. Yeah. Is there like a scene in the social no- network that just sort of establishes him as this character when he like steps into his Yes, role I mean, as the I don't do you guys remember the first scene of the movie? Um one of truly one of the better first scenes of a movie remind, in recent memory. Us. So he's sitting at a bar in Cambridge um mm-hmm. with his girlfriend who's played by Rooney Mara and they're having a conversation, and Rooney Mara is oh, yes. very intelligent and, you know, sparring with him. I didn't know they take SATs in China. They don't. I wasn't talking about China anymore. I was talking about me. You got a 1600? Yes. I could sing in an acapella group, but I can't sing. Does that sing. mean you actually got nothing wrong? I could row crew or invent a $25 PC. Or you get into a final club? Or I get into a final club. Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg, just shuts her down at every opportunity, is an absolute jerk. Wait, settle down. What is it supposed to mean? Erica, the reason we're able to sit here and drink right now is because he used to sleep with the door guy. The door guy? His name is Bobby. I have not slept with the door guy. The door guy is a friend of mine. And this kind of culminates in him saying, you know, he's at Harvard and says, well, you're a BU, you know, who ca- your, your, your degree won't matter. <laughs> I'm sorry you are not sufficiently impressed with my education. I'm sorry I don't have a robot, so we're even. I think we should just be friends. I don't want friends. I was just being polite. I have no intention of being friends with you. I'm under some pressure right now from my OS class, and if we could just order some food, I think we should... Okay, you are probably going to be a very successful computer person. You're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole. She breaks up with him. He goes home, uh, immediately blogs about her in an incredibly misogynistic and derogatory way and creates this thing called Face Smash, um, which allows Harvard students to rate their female peers. So that's the mythology of the movie. I don't Mm -hmm. think this happened, you know, ABC. No. Mm -hmm. But that's the creation of the movie, this guy who's kind of on it and is going to push hard and get get where he wants to go. But it's interesting because when we talk about the kind of establishing... Um, trauma, right, or establishing scene, um, which in this case is kind of a minor trauma being dumped. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his reaction in the opening scene of The Social Network, Zuckerberg's, um, is says a lot about the kind of the type of masculinity that this tech founder genius uh is usually aligning himself with, right? It's Revenge of the Nerds. It's Revenge of the Nerds. And I think Isaacson's book by—it's it's, it's a version of that, but it's a version that's more 
justified <laughs> in a sense. You know, it's like he's he was bullied by his father. He was bullied by his yeah, peers. Yeah, and so he decides, you know, never again will I be the weak one. So it's, like, it's more psychologically legible. You it's mean? more psych- well, it's more psychologically excusable, let's say, right? Because it's less, it's it's more, uh, it's pain and is more just justified, right? Than than what you describe is in in Fincher's in Fincher's movie, but I think then it doesn't really, and it it it, it kind of like leads the book as it goes on not to really explore kind of the darker impulses that have to do with the type of masculinity that I think Musk um, embodies, right? You know, so I found um, the social network to be a really critical portrait of a person. I mean, downright harsh. And I wonder, like, have, where do you think we are with that? I mean, of course we have, um, you know, we we have Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, mm-hmm. um, you know, another tech figure who immediately comes to mind as someone who's been absolutely villainized um, and fittingly so in my opinion. Um, although, you know, complicated yeah. valence is the one woman founder we can all think of who's been absolutely, you know, taken to task while these men seem to just soar. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, do you think we're still in an age – you know, one thing that struck me about the Isaacson book, I don't really think we're still in this age of blind idolatry to tech leaders. And I don't think Isaacson is trying to idolize. I think he just doesn't fully have perspective. So, like, do you guys think our cultural representations are still in that kind of – you know, misty, no. awe-inspired awe era or what? No, well, I don't. I mean, didn't you watch We Crashed? I did watch We Crashed. I actually wrote about We Crashed um, for the magazine when it came out in um, 2022. Um, it's the scripted limited series on Apple TV that tells the story of Adam Newman, who um, founded WeWork, the office-sharing uh, startup uh, that reached – uh, untold heights and an enormous valuation before crashing to the ground. What do you think when I say workspace? Cubicles, ugly furniture, bad fluorescent lighting, death. Exactly. The future of work looks different. We're selling an experience. You know, it's it's the the show itself is kind of satirical. Uh, but also tells the story in a, in a critical way, and it does signal. This is one of one of the cultural texts that does signal that we no longer are in an era in which we completely glamorize these tech founders, and um, it kind of dovetails for me also with the disillusionment of millennials. You know, as a, as a mem- as a young member of Gen X, <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember being impressed that. People around me who were somewhat younger uh, and just the, the general air of the culture seemed to take tech as kind of a great given, you know, or as, a, as these tech founders, Apple, you know, the iPhone. Um, the people admire them, you mean? Yes, as something that is wholly good or wholly positive yeah. for society uh, and normalized as something that shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be asking questions about. And um, as millennials became more squeezed, you know, kind of post-financial crash, like in the early 2010s and, uh, you know, just generally the, maybe the 2016 election to, you know, brought on a, a different darker mood to the country 
I think there's no longer this blind belief that the tech founder is a kind of like beyond reproach Mm -hmm. genius who should be wholly admired with no reservations. In a minute, why are we so obsessed with telling the story of history through the lens of great men? And what will it take to get away from that? Critics at Large will be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So, Nomi, you just described the way our ideas of this archetype right, have soured over time. And that's actually a great segue because it brings me to a way that maybe we can zoom this conversation out. Um, I think that might be part of the problem with with the Walter Isaacson book because we don't have that same uncritical sort of hagiograph, even though there are many hagiographical elements to this book, make no mistake. But we don't all have that mood. But we, again and again, we do tell stories about, you know, usually men, but not always, who, you know, wield this great industrial power, you know, that um, make their imprint on history. Why? Like, I guess my question is, what is it that keeps drawing us to narratives like that? And and what resources do we lack, even artistically, to to sort of break that ideology? The- Oof, what a good question. Damn, I hope we have some resources. I mean, right, you're talking about great man theory, that great men drive history. You know, we're talking about Thomas Carlyle, 19th century philosopher, um, about whom I think it's fair to say uh, I have mixed feelings. Maybe others do or don't have feelings about Carlyle. Maybe we can do a future podcast about, All about Carlyle. Carlyle. Yeah. Um, you know, this, right, this idea, this, this idea that great men, that Napoleon's are the ones who make history. Of course, it's still very much with us. I mean, even we're talking about narrative. On the level of narrative, one person and the story of a life is always going to appeal to us. You know, um, it's an easier way to to follow a story just to make someone the protagonist. Where I run into trouble is, you know, I run into trouble because someone like Elon Musk has made things happen. Undeniably. I mean, even if a lot of the way he's done that I find to be actually pretty prosaic, he became rich during dot-com boom, you know, made some canny, very canny investments, reinvested his money, whatever. And then a lot of like what he does just as this 
um, you know, is like the head of Tesla or SpaceX, to me reminds me of like someone renovating a house where they just are like, that contractor has given us a bad quote. Like, no, we can get we <laughs> no. can get those parts for cheaper. We want to use cheaper aluminum. So what if this rocket blows up? You know, it's not actually very glorious. Right. Um, and it's not actually very visionary. It's just penny pinching. And that turns out to be sometimes disastrous and sometimes effective. Um, yeah, the, it's, you know, you have to look through the telescope a different way. You know, you have to not just interview the brother and the wives. You have to think about who else is affected by these things. I mean, again, we're drawn to this person because he has power over us. I That's the part to me that I think Isaacson keeps forgetting, um, power and where power fits yeah. into all of this. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a variety of ways to tell the story of history, right? Uh, I mean, and and even if it's um, focusing on on a figure, the great man theory isn't the only path forward. Of course, if if feminism and the civil rights movement has taught us anything, you know, it, it's that there are more voices than than the white man, you know, to be to be considered, and even the form, you know, what even the form of oral history, right, where it's like. You get you you get at an era, you get at a moment in culture. You tell the story of historical change, let's say, but it's uh, focalized through the eyes of different players. So I don't know. I mean, for me, a, 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 an example that's very dear to my heart is is uh, is Please Kill Me, the Legs McNeil and, and Julian McCain book that tells how punk broke you know, in in New York in the 70s and on to London. And it's told through the voices of hundreds of hundreds of different people. And it, it might be it might sound like an odd comparison, but it, it's like I, I I just think that there's something unsatisfying about the Isaacson book because it's so unidirectional. It so doesn't ask questions think, in a strange way. I, I think the perspective of this book is very much, you know, the ones who want to change the world, power to them. And we're not going to look too closely at what those changes might be and how they might be accomplished. Like, I do think Isaacson has some skepticism, but I think he keeps forgetting it. This this issue of journalism does like, and maybe this is going to be our ending because it's, it's very personal for all of us. Hope you're ready to get personal. I'm always ready to get personal, Vincent. We, we, all of us, you know, because we all on some level practice the dark art of the magazine profile, <laughs> <laughs> do sometimes have to deal with this this issue in microcosm, right? Mm. Like writing about someone who's famous. And mm. what is the point? To, to propagate their fame, to question their fame, to express our enthusiasm, to express our cynicism. What What is, like, what is the point of doing that? And, and is it like a very doomed or compromised... This is very. I'm I feel that you have dark. an answer at the end of this question that you want to give. No, I, 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 I'm gonna think about it once I ask it. But <laughs> like, is it is how how compromised? It, especially if someone who's like right now, you know, someone who's alive and to working tell right the now. story of a life, I yeah. think which really, we do in a much more compressed form. I mean, yeah, and suffice not, it to say, yeah. we don't have five to six hundred pages at our disposal. Um, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> so, but yeah, what what's up with that? But is, is it you know? I think it's what really, kind of enterprise is it? I think it's really difficult. I think it's really difficult, which is maybe why I was trying to, you know, in my comment before about it's a <laughs> it's a large project executed. I think it's a tricky thing. I do think it's a tricky thing. I think it's tricky when you get to know someone, you know. 
uh, and you spend a lot of time with them, and we all know this, I think. When I profile someone and when I read a profile by someone or I read a biography by someone, what is most important to me is getting kind of the the texture of the person, I think, you know, and 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 getting a portrait of him or her or them that is manages to show their complications in a way that's economical. I mean, maybe the economical part comes because I don't have 500 pages, you know, but I think in general, you know, in a way that's elegant. Let's put it this way. Okay. So detail, texture, complication without having to hit someone on the head with a baseball bat. And if I'm thinking about Isaacson, according to these very subjective metrics (laughs) of mine, I guess I got the texture, but the texture isn't that interesting. That's the fundamental problem. It's not that interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I don't indeed, know if it's because indeed, he's like indeed, a nerd. And indeed, it's like, boring. It's kind of boring. <laughs> indeed, it's boring. It's kind. It's it's sort it's of heinously boring. We waited this long to say this. It's boring. This is boring. I need to just say yeah. it. Yeah. Oh my God, is this it's boring. Boring. It's boring? Honestly, yeah. like, and that's what's amazing about I think trying to write about a person because every person is irreducibly interesting, right? By just like dint of what a human being is. They're amazing, all of them, but. That's narrating, <laughs> narr- narrating, wow. narrating I'm, I'm every. St- I know. Narrating, I think that, but narrating yeah. every step of their life is also not that interesting. What is interesting, and I think what maybe solves this problem is like, um, I don't just want to know like about the person and the timeline. I want to know what it is about our culture, our world that produces this kind of person. Right. Maybe that's the antidote to the great, great man thing too. It's like, well, what, right. is, what about the answer is we who pro- makes him? The answer is we who produced makes him. Right. The answer is we produced him because if if the products that tech people are making are not bought and valued by us, um, there is no product. There is no power. There is no money at the end of it. Like we are all responsible um, on a very practical level and on the bigger myth-making level. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do wonder by – you know, he's done lots of things. He's crashed rockets. He's crashed cars. He – all kinds of – I wonder if he will crash the mythology – of the tech founder, just by being such a public, you know, these guys before they didn't have Twitter to mess but themselves Vincent, up. Even Steve also... Jobs in his lifetime, people loved him. Will he? Will he fail so spectacularly? Not at the making of things, but at the being of this person that nobody will want to be it, this though. again. So many people he's also love sent, it. He's also sent the cars on the road and and sent the rockets into space. He did put them, but but I but I mean, I'm, those I are all metaphors it, for true. the for the 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 lane of tech guy. Will he, will he crash the car of the tech guy as a thing? But he's but, – but I think he's got it aimed at the sun. I think if anybody can I ruin mean, it, he can. from your mouth to, to God's ears, as they say, but I, but I do think that some people – and, you know, not to bring this hackneyed comparison back into, you know, into view. But, I mean, look at Trump. You know, the, the more – sometimes the more – someone is crashing the idea of what a president is or what a tech founder is, you know, uh, and acting the fool, what we think of as an incredible fool, that just kind of, I mean, it might turn the, the, the myth of the tech leader into something else, but the popularity is by no means, 
it, it by no means guarantees the crashing of yeah, who knows? him, you know, as as a figure, as a central, central, central figure in our culture, uh, which is, uh, of course, the, the the dark shadow over this biography. The story is not over. And who the hell knows where it's going to end? But it's, it's, it's trying to make me pay for Twitter right now. So we'll see. To be continued. To, to be continued. Over and out. Over. <laughs> out. Over and out. Is that what they say on the launch pad? No. <laughs> uh, Five. Cover. Four. Yeah. Three. Okay, sorry. <laughs> In a blaze of glory, this was and is Critics at Large. <laughs> Thank you, Vincent and Alex. Thank you, guys. See you soon. Critics at Large is a co-production of The New Yorker and Condé Nast Entertainment. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby. Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. We had engineering help today from Gabe Caroga. And this episode was mixed by Mike Kutchman. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and follow Critics at Large wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.